This week on the podcast, we sat down with the man of the hour, Tim Doyle. Tim is the ex-chief marketing officer at Koala and the founder of one of the hottest startups in Australia, Eucalyptus. We discussed Tim's drivers, competitiveness, contrarian nature, and his lessons in business. We dive deep into his marketing hiring principles and of course got into some of his controversial tweets and had some debates around that. There were so many takeaways from this episode and we were left amazed by how Tim's brain works. Hope you enjoy the episode. Before we dive into this week's podcast, we'd like to give a quick shout out to the first ever sponsors of the Sash and Adam show. We're influencers now. <laughs> so this podcast is sponsored by Recess and you could easily skip this ad, but I don't think you're going to want to. So Recess are one of the great upcoming Aussie startups. There are a few uh, young guns who are developing and designing furniture for your office and for the home as well. They're making ergonomic chairs, uh, sound booths. Uh, workstations, a whole sort of range of things. And hopefully we'll have a few chairs soon to show you as well. Recess have helped hundreds of Aussie startups, including well-known ones such as Eucalyptus, Afterwork and Leica, as well as large enterprises like Mervac and Westpac. So we've got pretty horrible furniture. <laughs> All of our guests say it. If you want better furniture than us, you should go to Recess. <laughs> the chairs are nearly breaking. So we've got a discount code for you. If you use Sachin and Adam, you'll get 20% off for your next order, whether it's for the office or for your home. Um, and if you want to get a full fit out for your office, just hit us up on LinkedIn or Twitter and we'll help sort you out. So show Recess some love and now we're back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Satch and Adam show. So today we have probably one of the most spicy figures in the Australian startup scene, Tim Doyle. And on one of his tweets, he said he hates the words strategic and innovative. So we're going to introduce him as the strategic and innovative founder of Eucalyptus. <laughs> and we're both former strategy consultants. So I think you'll hate yeah, us because of that. It should be a lot of fun. Um, no, super keen to dive into this one. I think we've both listened to like every single podcast you've been on. We've been through all your Twitter. So Thank we've you. sort of thought a lot about you, but also like what you've been asked, but what you haven't been asked as well. Yeah, great. And something we love to like start with our guests is just understanding you at the really deep sort of personal level. Who would you say like Tim Doyle is at his core? Um, I think, uh, like, I think the thing that is most important to me in like the building of a company is like I have thought deeply for a long time about how you get the most out of people and how you get the most out of people's structures, um, and so like creating environments where um, people can succeed and seeing those people succeed is like probably the thing that makes me most happy um, in my work life, and kind of like reflecting on that back to like even working in restaurants and bars and things and seeing people kind of take opportunities and do good things. That's been like a, I guess like that's where I get the most joy. Um, I think like what's a really interesting version of that is like had this like kind of long-term clash with, um, with Blackbird about like um, whether or not I was like doing my life's work, building this like quite mercenary opportunistic company. Um, and I think like my argument is that you can do your life's work um, on how you build a company, not necessarily what you build. Um, and so I guess that is a nice summary of like what is a motivator for me. Yeah, interesting. I think we'll dig into that for in a second. But um, like you mentioned your work life. Does that carry across your personal life? Like are you about enabling people? Is that something that resonates um, with you? Yeah, I think I think I think so. I think um I, I look honestly, I think like work is really central to how I like tr be try and be competitive. I think like in my life outside of work, I would say I'm like operating in like a different mode. Okay. Um like I would say I, as work has gotten more serious in my life, I think things that are like otherwise competitive have kind of shrunk away and kind mm. of been replaced by 
things that are more like relaxing and calming. And can so can we dig into those for a second? Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, like I run a lot. So yeah. um, I probably at the moment I'm running like between 30 or between 25 and 35K a week, but that would wow. ideally be 50 if I was um, a bit more disciplined. And I think like find that therapeutic rather than competitive. Um, started playing golf last year in a very like um, – white male CEO kind I of way. I would not have taken you to be a golf player. <laughs> I thought you would be sort of being that riff on golf players. I'm not, I'm not a good golfer. I'm just like, there's it's just memes fun, about right? this coming like, out now. There's something, there's something like quite pure about like being bad at something and yeah. being, and still finding it enjoyable. Yeah. Um, I feel like you relate to that. Yeah. Not, not as a dig to you, but yeah. like do things that you're bad at. Yeah. 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 Like write poetry. But yeah, yeah. Like I just like, I'm like, I like forget about, I spend four hours doing this thing and then I forget about whether I went well or not at that thing like yeah. 10 minutes later. And that's quite, that's quite nice. Really. So, so you said like being competitive is a big part of you. Tim Doyle in high school when you were at Cranbrook, was that like, were you really competitive growing up? Was that like yeah, in you? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. like, I think um, I was actually reflecting on this with our, our like um, my head of operations or like our CEO, COO, he's married to the sister of like what I would call the person I was most competitive with in high school. And we were just reflecting on like how that competition kind of played out over years um, and then, and I'd like now think of it as like such a silly thing because it's like, you, like, I think like when you're young, you're kind of like competitive across a whole range of things because like you want to kind of prove everything is a competition because you're like looking to prove yourself. And then as, as you kind of get more domain specific and, and unfocused, you kind of accept people are different and, and kind of care more about competing in the one thing. And I think like I throw so much energy at that, that nothing else kind of comes up as being important competitively. That's really mm. interesting. Like the way you kind of insinuated, it seems like competitive is like zero or one. Like you, you're either really competitive or just relax. Would you say that that's how you try and think about things in your life? Or yeah, is that... I think so. I think okay. like, I think like I, I would say I was like, I think like competitiveness is, it manifests as like you trying to prove yourself as, as yeah. something, right? As like mm. valuable at something. And I think like um, the more you realize what you're good at and what you're not good at and like also your limitations, um, like I spent a lot of time trying to be a very good cricketer when I was young. Um, and like at about 16, like I became very good friends with, um, Steve Smith and I realized I was not a very good cricketer and I never would be. <laughs> it's I the think. wrong person to be good friends with. Yeah. Like I, I had this like realization, like actually like we were in a KFC and like I, um, I was like, like I was like, we were like throwing fries at each other and he can like, he just like moved at a different speed. To me. <laughs> and I was like, holy fuck. Like this is just a level of natural ability that I will never have. Um, and so therefore like, this is actually like a redundant place for me to spend a lot of my time thinking that I can be the best. Yeah. I just won't be. Were, were you the one that brought him to Koala as an uh, angel yeah, investor? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. He, he had this really interesting experience of being like, strangely wealthy as a 21 year old um and then also very interested in business yeah. but he when he would talk to business people they would want to talk about cricket yeah and so he was like i'd like to learn about business but i i'm sick of talking to people that want to talk about cricket when i want to talk about business mm. so i was like well maybe what you could potentially do is invest some money in some companies and then they'll have to take you seriously because um you're in, you're a shareholder not a cricketer um and i think that played out quite well for him Mm. And kind of dig into that competitiveness a little bit more. Is there any clues in your past of like young Tim that, you know, what drove this competitiveness? Uh, I, I, I think, uh, like, I think like I, I played a lot of sport when I was a kid. I think like, like the competitiveness, I think like the business competitiveness and like the, yeah. the desire to see businesses do well. I think like the first time I remember that being a really big thing for me is like, I worked in the opening of Bavarian Beer Cafe at Bondi Beach. Um, and, like they had really high hopes for it because they'd opened one in the rocks and one in York street in the city and they'd done really well. Um, and so we saw the original forecasts and they were like a hundred grand a week and the business was doing like 30 grand a week through the first month. And everyone was like absolutely shitting themselves. And I think like 
I was like, this is quite obviously, um, they've obviously cooked this. Like the average price of a beer on Campbell Parade is like six bucks and we're charging 10 50 and like um, sausages and pork knuckles aren't exactly what you want to eat on the way to or from the beach. And so we need to change the offering here. Um, and so I sent the email to like, the owner of the company and like he sprayed me and was like, what are you talking about? You don't understand this business at all. Um, and I was like, oh, that's a, like, an interesting experience, but like seemed like a weird thing to do as a 19 year old. Yeah, mm, interesting. interesting. How, how does that competitiveness relate to your ambition? Like, do you think it just organically leads to having like really big goals or is, did, do you have like this sort of like side part of you which layers these really big goals and then it sort of gets brought up with that competitive streak? Um, like, I think it's worth separating ambition and competitiveness. I think like um, ambition is about wanting to see, um, like my, I guess like I trace my ambition to wanting to see the, the way that I think businesses should run be executed at scale. Um, so like I have a view of like modern, like I think like what technology has enabled in the way that workforces are managed. Like when I was working as a young professional, I didn't see that play out. You know, in professional services firms, I was like the way that young people are treated in these places is ridiculous and it seems like a pyramid scheme. Um, and so like ambition came from like having a different view of how the world should be operating and then competitiveness now manifests in like wanting to make sure that the version of the thing that i believe is the one that plays out at scale yeah. that's a really good segue into like i think the other thing we really noticed about you is that you're a very independent thinker fairly contrarian like you often go against the grain but you've got like really strong opinions mm. where does that come from as well um i i just think like ultimately like i think if you can't have conviction in things um like what's the point like I, i'm like a very like I, I think like the idea of like strong but like Strong beliefs, weekly held, I think is, is like really core to who I am because I'm like, think about things a lot, um, willing to put my ideas out there, willing to be challenged, willing to be wrong. Um, but I found like most of my learning has come from when I've had the willingness to be like, I believe the world should look like this and currently it looks like this. And then someone says to me, no, no, actually, I think it actually should look like this. Mm. Um, I think like the example that I'll give is like in the early stages of eucalyptus in like the House of Brands model, I went to the US to kind of raise money and um, Mike Dubo, who's an investor at Greylock um, and uh, used to be the head of growth at Stitch Fix, um, kind of challenged me on a lot of my core assumptions around marketing. And um, I felt like, and like I learned a lot and I felt like if I hadn't put those assumptions out there as like pretty bold statements, they never would have resonated. Um, and so I don't know if you've read the, there's this doc I wrote. Yeah, the OG one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doc, right? It's like, it's, it's full of assertions about how the world works. Um, and a lot of them are wrong and stupid. Um, and reflection but um they were super it was super valuable putting that out there because the feedback became eucalyptus is there any kind of like comical example of where you've believed something a lot and then you're proven completely wrong um bc associates <laughs> uh no i'm like 100 percent right about that <laughs> um oh like a lot of my like a lot of my kind of like beliefs about marketing have been like so i, I guess like i guess like i i i form a lot of beliefs about like the way that marketing is moving right yeah. and like um, I've often tested those with money. Um, and so one example was I was like in the early days of social media um, that I thought that like um, extra validity was provided when you were able to put like a name logo on um, a piece of content. So like, for instance, like people would take something from like Buzzfeed more seriously than they would take something from like a koala ad. And so um, like we gave 50 grand to Buzzfeed to produce all this content for us thinking it would be like add validity mm -hmm. to the koala brand. And I think like for $50,000, we got something like, I, mean, I think it was like something laughable, like 60 clicks. Okay. Um, and so like it was the most expensive um, like channel bet that we'd ever done. And it was like an incredible, incredible fuck up. And so like 
but it was like, you know, it was a guess. And like the other side of that is like, there are ones that work really well too. Mm, so interesting. I was initially going to think that you were someone of like deep conviction and somewhat contrarianism because you just don't care about what people think, but it's starting to sound like you see a lot of value in it because you've tested this into the world. Yeah. You're like, okay, if this is valuable behavior, I'm just going to sort of keep on doing that. No, like I care deeply what people think. Okay. Um, like, um, I just think most people are wrong um, about quite a lot of things. Um, but I like when I find someone that is like disagrees with me and has valid reasons to disagree with me, I will change my opinion really fast because mm. I'm like, I, I like want to learn from people. And I think the best way to learn from people is to challenge them because like, if you just get like stuck, stuck in this like swamp of mass agreement, then like, what's, what are you actually doing? Like what, mm. and like, this comes back to a marketing principle, right? It's like, what, um, what do you want your content to do? Like you want your content to stand out and be memorable. Um, and that's the way to like, you would say that like career building is at least partly about being memorable. Um, and so um, memorable for good work, memorable for good ideas. But I mean, you're never going to be either of those things unless you're willing to put those ideas out there in a form that like challenges people. Otherwise, like, mm. like if you're going to, if you're going to like feedback your manager's ideas to them in a way that seems like mildly agreeable, you're going to be pretty unremarkable. Mm. Um, and the places you're going to end up are pretty unremarkable. Uh, we're going to move on to marketing in a second, but like I've got this burning desire to understand your competitiveness and where it comes from. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so I, like the way I've seen it play out is there's, there's sometimes it comes from chip on the shoulder. Sometimes it comes from something in someone's youth. And there's two ways it usually like goes. It's like self-competitiveness or it's competitors with other people. Is there any like, do you have an, any idea of where this competitiveness comes from? I like, I'm trying to go back as far as I can. And I'm like... I just like I, all its early manifestations are like academic or sporting. Yeah. And I think like the reality was, but I'm like, I'm trying to be like consistent with it. And like academically, I wasn't a good performer because as soon as I realized that like it wasn't a competition that was interesting, it was like not even a, not even one that I wanted mm. to really be a part of. But then sport always held its competitiveness for me. So like, do I want to diagnose like psychologically what's going on there? Uh, like, I think it's pretty innate. Like I don't okay. necessarily, yeah. like, I don't, like there's no chip because I'm like, I like seeing other people do well. Mm. Um, yeah. And like, I'm stoked that the person that I competed with in high school is a vascular surgeon and is like incredible and yeah. like way better than me at 98% of the things we both do. Mm. Um, and so like, I don't know, like maybe it's self-competitiveness and it's desire to be, yeah, yeah. Things. I, I think you can tell a bit about Satch and I by like digging so deep because like <laughs> yeah. we're just obsessed with like understanding people like the sort of deepest layers of the ether and I think like we've found with a lot of successful people maybe like 80% plus that there's normally some chip some sort of like psychological motivator in a young age but then some people just have innate sort of characteristics as well um, that's yeah I totally mean like what am I, I like what are my underlying psychological drivers I think like I, I was reflecting on this the other day and I think like um, they're like the like combination of the shortness of my attention span and the speed that I like think at mm. create you, all of you these. You think like really fast. Like, as soon as you really walked fast. in the door, like you started talking about something and your brain was just going off yeah, and you speed. were tired at the same time. Yeah. And speed like, like fast, right? Everything yeah. is fast. And so like, I think that combination of things is like the constant need for new um, challenges and new mm. things and new problems. Um, I think that's actually like probably the most fundamental um trait that I like that I like have had impact me both positively and negatively is that like the constant desire for new um, pushes you to new things but it also mm. leads to like some of the things that you do being unfinished and like the mm. unfinished nature of things is probably where like I've not done as well on things do you ever get bored of like friends or like relationships like does this transfer uh, over like, to all that no because like people are like 
infinitely interesting like and also you just need a lot of them right mm. you can have like if you if you imagine people as individual kind of sources of you know information and entertainment and that type of stuff then they'll all serve different purposes i think like but i would interact with i reckon i would i'd be in the top five percent of people for number of people i interact with regularly mm. um, i would say i maintain more relationships than most people do have you ever done an iq test or like yeah, but like they're not very good. Are okay. They? Yeah, I, I can sense that compute power coming through. Um, <laughs> so let, let's segue a little bit to marketing. So yeah. you're known in Australia as one of the best marketing people for what you've done at Koala, what you've done at Uke, um, and we can lump branding and advertising into that as well because um, sure. I don't know the distinctions well enough. Um, if you were building a marketing unicorn for let's say first years right now, what kind of things would you put into it? Yeah, like, oh my God, marketing education is such a shit show because there are like principled, like, I mean, it's like academia trying to teach business skills, right? It never really works very well. Um, but like, I think in finance, the like core principles are quite valuable, whereas in marketing, the core principles are kind of very dated and very painful. Um, I think like what I would start with is like, is like storytelling, right? Like most, most marketing is dressed up storytelling. Um, and so it's like, how do you structure a story? How do you structure a narrative, right? And so, like, firstly, like, what is the narrative? Um, and so it's like, how do I craft something that is compelling? And I think this is where marketers have real problems, in my view, is, like, like marketing is strategy in, the first, in its first version because it's, like, how do we win? How do we differentiate? How do we kind of create a compelling offering to people? And if you're not involved in that conversation because you're waiting for that to come to you, then you're, like, way, way behind the eight ball. So, like, firstly, like, how do you craft um, like winning strategies? And I think like that's where marketing education is really flawed because like a lot of the basics of things that you get taught as a strategy consultant around like crafting value for and capturing value that's actually really important in marketing as well. Okay. Um, so start with that. Um, and I think like like in really simple terms, I'm like understanding things like the seven powers and um, actually I like I'd, I'd start with that. Like I, I love that framework. Mm. Um, and then from there, it's like okay, how do we craft this into a narrative that is compelling? And it's like well what do we want people to remember about the thing that we differentiate on? And so like, let's take, let's take like pilot with erectile dysfunction, right? Yeah. Where it's like um, the point of differentiation is discretion basically. Um, and so all you want people to remember is that uh, the first thing you want them to remember is that like um, a treatment for this exists. Yeah. Um, and then you want them to remember that it's discreet. And then you want them to remember um, some level of trust of the thing. Yeah. It's like after you've proven them that it's going to solve their problem and that it's discreet, which is like the friction in their experience, then you're trying to go, well, like what problems do I have to, what, what like blockers do I have to alleviate here? Mm. Um, so you craft that, right? You know, these are the things I want people to remember. Um, and then like the thing that happens after that, which I think is really, really important that people miss is like, how do I actually make this memorable? Mm. Um, and that's like a, that's like a, if I was crafting uni student, like it's like, how does a TikTok work? Like people, people think that like, the further, the more like highbrow you get with content, the more effective it is. But the reality is, is like the more lowbrow and real time that content actually is and the more competitive the landscape that content exists in, the more likely it is to be engaging because it has to survive on its engagement alone. You can't buy, we can, but like it's not particularly effective to buy tons of TikTok space. You know, you, it's about winning in the feed and stopping the scroll. Um, and so, but on a TV ad, you just own the space. So it doesn't really matter. You can talk about fucking whatever you want. Um, so crafting engaging narratives. So like how do you structure a piece of work? So you need a hook, right? So like so much content has, doesn't have a hook. Like why am I stopping here? What is creating memory? Like so um, so uh, a really effective Facebook ad for Pilot has been um, the hook is, did you know that Facebook doesn't allow you to say the full name of ED? Mm. Um, right? 
Uh, and so that's you start true? with that. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Um, and so you, you start with that and people go, oh, that's a bit of an attention grab. And then you go, which is a real shame because um, if you can't talk about it, it says that there's shame attached to it. And if there's shame attached to it, then people won't get it treated. And if they don't get it treated, then their relationships go downhill and their life goes downhill. So that's why Pilot exists because mm. um, it's discreet. It's a low shame environment. It's affordable and it's trustworthy and it's got real doctors. Um, so like if you think about the structure of that ad, it's got like a hook um, and then it's got a resolution and then it's got like validation um, and it's structured in a way that is like willing, like able to win on Facebook um, mm. or on TikTok or on TV or on radio or whatever the environment. So like structured storytelling is a really important thing. And then once you've got structured storytelling down, then you start to get into the principles of like capital allocation and, um, and moving money around in order to reach audiences in the biggest numbers. But I think like often people get taught that first. When I started talking about marketing in broad audiences, most people working in advertising agencies and so therefore like you had to talk to them about media and the internet and shit and it was ridiculous. But now too many young marketers are performance marketers. Mm. And so you, they come in and they're like, I understand the system. I know how to buy a search ad. I'm yeah. fucking great. And it's like, well, actually you don't understand storytelling at all. Um, and so if I were to go back to a 18 year old and design a uni course, I'd be like strategy, storytelling, allocation, audience management, analytics. And then you'd hopefully have something that looks are, like a curriculum. Are you insinuating that like, kind of organic is dead? No, no, no. Organic, great storytelling as well, right? Okay. Like, like Do you want to just like distinguish those things for our audience that might not know more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like you've got obviously like advertising in the paid context and then you've got uh, organic, which people often, you know, like it's SEO or it's just kind of creating creating content or whatever it might be, right? But I think like the weird thing is that people make a distinction between those two things because like if you think about what they are, right? So like let's take the two quintessential examples that people will talk about here, which is like Facebook advertising and SEO. That's kind of like... Yeah. The two sides of the coin that people often talk about. It's like, what are the inputs here? So on Facebook, you uh, pay to make a piece of content and then you pay to distribute that content, right? Uh, in SEO, you pay to make a piece of content. Like there's a writer there. And then you pay an engineer to make sure that the all of the ranking factors are well adjusted. So site speed and all that type of stuff costs you money. So you're paying money for the distribution. Um, and then some of that stuff will work and some of that stuff won't. And then you'll... Um, you might pay, uh, you might pay for like uh, a backlink or you might do this. Like everything is the input of like, how good is the storytelling? And then how much are you paying for distribution? And then how much are you paying for production? Mm. And so like whether or not you take the shortest possible route to distribution, which is Facebook advertising or the longest possible route, which is SEO. Yeah. On one hand, you're getting probably more defensibility, but on the other hand, you're getting like faster distribution. And so like these things aren't like yeah. different yeah. things. They're, they're points on the same spectrum. And if you're not using both, then you're not marketing properly. That makes sense. And then just a quick point before we move on. When you're kind of testing how compelling your story is, do you go out to audience and test or do, would you test that internally? No, nah, audience for okay. sure. But I like there are first principles elements to this, right? Yeah. Like you can see quite quickly okay. things are good storytelling and most people have a decent eye for storytelling. Yeah. Um, but then like the cost of distribution and the cost of testing in modern advertising is so low. Yeah. You know, like let's say that a thousand impressions on TikTok currently costs like maybe five bucks. Yeah. Like you'd be mad not to buy 10,000 of them. Yeah. And just see. Yeah. Like if you're running around the office asking people, you're probably spending less time and more money than you would just pumping it out there. Yeah. What made you good at this stuff in the first place? Is this just like doing reps, thinking about it lots? Or do you think maybe you've got like an insight into psychology, which makes you a good storyteller? Uh, I do like high school debating. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of structured storytelling as part of that. Mm. Um, and I think you get a lot of really interesting feedback loops out of doing that. And I think you actually meet a lot of people who are good at advertising who did that in some form. Um, and I think the other thing that I've done a lot of is I did like a ton of sports gambling when I was in university. So I like used to trade, um, tennis when you could do it a little bit easier than you can do it now. 
Um, and so you really see narratives at play in sports gambling in a way that like, and this is going to sound like I'm a degenerate, but like, um, so uh, like form, right? So like, you know, this concept of like, say, say, uh, say Novak Djokovic has won, uh, or, or Rafa Nadal's run 20 clay court matches in a row. Um, so that's the wrong, let's flip this. Okay. Let's say uh, Novak Djokovic has lost, has lost three times in a row. Mm. Um, there's this idea of like some, he will be due, right? Um, and people will bet into that narrative. It's actually ridiculous. Like there's, that's like completely the wrong way to approach things. Like momentum is momentum and momentum is likely to continue and people over-optimize for the, the flip of that, right? Mm. They're like, they will remember when he came back and proved everyone wrong and won. But the reality is most of the time, the reason that narrative exists in the first place is because that's not what was happening. Mm. And so like you see the impact of like narrative and story and perception on markets so often in such real time in that environment that like, you're like, okay, well, if this thing that happens organically moves the needle on this thing, which is a real time reflection of perception so quickly, um, then this will obviously extrapolate out to how you craft stories as well. And then the other time I saw it like real time tested is like, I did the Labour party digital campaign in 2016 and like you seem the needle move so quickly yeah. um, on such incredible diversity of issue. Um, and so that, that really shapes you as well. That would have been fascinating. What, what do you think are the best opportunities in marketing or I think you like to call them arbitrages in other podcasts? Like yeah, where, at where the we moment, sort of like, oh, like, so I think this thing's happening um, on the internet, which is really cool, um, which is the digital media. So TikTok is reshaping how social algorithms work. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, so if you're old enough to remember before Facebook ads were a thing um, and before the newsfeed was a thing, then like what a lot of the way that Facebook spread content spread was like organically. Right. So you'd see a whole lot of uh, like likes harvesting type behavior where it was like, like this page, if you, you know, it's Buzzfeed listicles, right. It's like um, the strategy behind Buzzfeed listicles is like um, appeal to a relatively narrow group of people. So you'll remember these 13 things if you were born in 1992. Um, right. And then everyone who's born in 1992 will share that thing. And it's like a interest based spread of content. Um, Facebook changed that quite fundamentally through Instagram into a like um, social graph. So you saw content of people connected to you and one degree removed from you. Um, and that was the dominant method for 10 years. Um, and so you saw uh, advertising kind of play into that by buying space in that environment and spending very little time on organic content and no interest-based content or direct response or fucking influencer talk to camera, get the product out there, buy the space, shortest path to conversion. Um, what's happening now because of TikTok is where we're seeing the return of the interest-based graph. So instead of, and also because of um, iOS 13 and the, the Apple ad tracking changes, um, we're seeing that like, you'll see a lot more interest-based content that's not connected to your friends in your feed, mm. uh, both Instagram and TikTok. And so what we're seeing is the return of interest-based content. Like if, if, you know, like I would imagine you see this at some extent with your podcast, it's like sometimes you'll post a video and it'll go weirdly big. And it's because it's found some, like thread on the interest graph where people start to see it and it starts to spread. Um, and like, that's a real fundamental shift for marketers because like um, we spent so long thinking about the shortest path to conversion. And now we're thinking a little bit more about like what it takes to hold people's engagement and interest over a longer period. So, you know, the, the rewards for making a piece of content about pregnancy for kin, they were never there two years ago. Mm. They're probably there now. Yeah. And, see, and see, that ties into controversy and controversy performing well, like our, most viral TikTok was Malcolm Turnbull saying, don't do law. And it just 
went everywhere around Australia, right? Because yeah, right. there's so, so yeah. many kids have signed up for law. And and that's like a beautiful piece of the interest-based graph, right? Because yeah. you have a whole lot of people that are interested in the thing, probably feeling that sentiment and it has a natural spread because it's a short piece of punchy content that um, that can move really quickly. The, the top moving piece of content in the 2016 election actually was we cut this video the day before the election, Malcolm Turnbull went on Sunrise and said, um, I can't guarantee no cuts to bulk billing because, like, that's a ridiculous thing. Mm. Um, and he, like, he explained. But, like, we cut the video really short at I can't guarantee no cuts to bulk billing and then <laughs> made it seem like he said he was going to cut bulk billing. And that's got, that's got 6 million views in, um, in 24 hours, which is probably, like, right at the end of the, the organic content cycle. I feel um, like we can get into a moral debate right now. Yeah. But we'll, <laughs> I've already had that well. lecture from Malcolm Turnbull. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Tim, what's kind of clear about the way you've been describing things is it feels like you're good at two really distinct things. One of them is like thinking probabilities and thinking in bets. And the second is like understanding heuristics and human psychology and then like marrying those two together to be almost a good capital allocator or allocator of um, capital when advertising or anything along those lines. We've been told by a fair few people in preparing for this podcast to ask you about capital allocation and your mm -hmm. philosophy to do with that. Yeah. And it can be with the marketing space, but also with you as an organization. Yeah, let's get out of marketing because it's kind of like, it's like people think of it as like a unique field and capital allocation is not like that, right? So I think like, let's take Eucalyptus, right? It's a D2C business. And like the prevailing narrative is that D2C businesses are bad. Right? And the reason that D2C businesses are bad is because they don't take the growth shape of SaaS businesses, right? Where it's like um, spend time building, subsidize that building time with VC funding. And then when you find product market fit, um, scale with VC funding because those cohorts are annuities because they just kind of like mature, right? And so like great business model, great way to fund a business, right? But in D2C businesses, the way that they grow is quite often like, um, product innovation, that's one. Let, let's take the UDI um, and hope Davey doesn't mind, but, um, but like, let's talk about this. And I think he would have the same view as me, which is like um, product innovation, clever piece of product placement um, and design. Um, doesn't need any further R&D. Uh, grows really quickly. Um, and then over time will reach maturity and growth will slow, right? So if you're a VC investor and you're backing that business, if you're spending the money to drive that growth, all you're doing is, pulling forward revenue that they otherwise would have gotten later because all customers are on a, if you map the entirety of the country on likelihood to buy an UDI, everybody, you could map that as linear, right? Everybody's slightly less likely than the person before them. Yeah. Um, so if you're finding that as a VC investor, you're just accelerating up that curve, but you're not really capturing any extra value. Um, and so to bring this all the way back to capital allocation, like what we do as a business is like, we think about that as quite a different problem where it's like, okay, um, what we actually do is we're a uh, brand generation or like a, a kind of like a solution generation engine and the funding has to go into that solution generation engine. So whether it's funding engineers or new product development or whatever it is, and then we will move capital around opportunities based on what is the best deployment of capital at a given time. And so the way that escapes this D2C trap is if I've got the UDI, I will only fund it as much as it can sustainably grow and deliver contribution margin back to the business um, and I will, if I have to find it outside that, I will slow it down. Yep. And I will use that money that I've got and as well as the contribution margin I've captured through building the UDI to fund calming blankets or to fund, fund dog food or whatever the, the next thing of my engine is. And that's what, how Davey- What, what metrics do you use to determine what's the next thing? Uh, I mean, like determining the next thing is, like we, we don't use metrics for that, right? Okay. We, we have a crack, yeah. um, do a lot of research. Um, 
we kind of have two vectors which we could go with here, new markets or new products. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess like the interesting thing about healthcare generally is that like um, a lot of the most interesting opportunities aren't on the surface. Yeah. Right. So you need to build depth and understanding of the system and infrastructure and all of those type of things to then unlock the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So like our general view is the deeper we go into healthcare, the bigger pockets of value will we unlock because the more legitimate our platform will be and yep. powerful our platform will be. Mm-hmm. So the way that we think about that from a capital allocation perspective is fund the development of the core so that you can unlock new, new pockets of value that you can then capture over time. Um, and so I'd like to think of us as like an antidote to the D2C model, but also like we're imperfect in that sense because like we got a bit like YOLO in the start of 2022 um, and blew out a lot of our metrics. And so that mm. led to obviously a phase of us having to do um, a big round of redundancies. And, um, mm. and I learned a lot from that as a capital allocator because I was going against my principles, chasing growth, thinking growth was the only thing that mattered. Um, and obviously that's proven to be Is that strategy of House of Brands, is that something that is technically only going to be done in like the short to medium term because eventually you'll find brands which are just so successful and you'll just want to pump all your capital into that? Or is like your ambition to always be trying things on the side, even um, if you've got wildly popular products? I think it's extremely dangerous to go and triple down on one thing because like you don't know what the, the long-term growth curve of that mm. looks like, right? We might find the best thing ever and then all of a sudden a better product in that space comes along and we lose it. Um, the reality is, is like you don't get incremental differentiation on medication very often. And so like we have to build service differentiation and our service differentiation, sometimes it'll win, sometimes it'll lose, sometimes it'll last a long time, sometimes it won't. And so I think like we are very much a house of brands by design and we, uh, I, I think we, our, our long term is in that. And like, yeah, I think so. Like I was just talking today about, to one of our, to one of our team about creating a, like a geriatric nutrition brand. Mm. And so I'm like, that's so far from what we do now. Um, but if we can build a core product development capability that's capable of it, like why not mm. have a crack at it? And if it's small and not worth it, we'll kill it. And if it's not, we'll grow it and it'll be part of the business. Mm. Yeah. I'm just going to check the, yeah, sure. Quick half-time break. Oh. Got a good segue into the next one. Sorry, I went, went, went a bit at you about the um, drivers thing. Oh, no, but yeah, I like, <laughs> don't worry. I'm going to do all that stuff. Um, <laughs> you go off for the next one. All right. And on that conversation about the next big thing, obviously GLP ones are very much on the menu at the moment. Do you want to explain what that is? Maybe Tim can explain <laughs> what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so obesity medications historically have been a problematic category because like they haven't been particularly effective. And when they have been effective, they've worked by like speeding up the metabolism. So as soon as you go off the medication and your metabolism slows down, your appetite stays high, you put the weight back on. Um, and so what GLP ones have, uh, so uh, GLP one medications kind of discovered maybe 10 years ago. Um, and what they do is they like, uh, they operate on the like hormone release from the pancreas um, that like uh, regulates hunger. And so you, like they're often marketed as like a metabolic reset um, because they re- they like have the capacity to reduce your hunger levels and allow you to kind of reset without speeding up um, your metabolism. So what we're seeing is like, and like the, the, the takeaway here is that like we're seeing remarkably more weight loss more consistently for more people than in any other drug innovation that we've seen in the last hundred and years. Unlike the originals, you have to keep on taking them or it's like a completely new drug? Oh, yeah, no, you, like you you do have to continue taking them. Okay. Um, so, but I was going to say like, that helps for retention for a product. And yeah, yeah. And I think like, I think like, but, but the effectiveness does plateau, right? So yeah. um, for the current generation of the medications, you're looking at like nine months of um, continued weight loss. Um, and then after that, it's up to you to kind of maintain the behaviors that ideally you've learned during that time. Um, or you may have to come back onto medication. So I guess like the challenge for the business is how do you deliver the service layer, which 
helps people maintain weight loss over a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a bit of a spicy question for you here. Yep. Is branding a good enough differentiation long-term for GLP-1s? Oh, no, fuck no. no okay. No, no, no. So, so is the aim to be the distribution as well? No, like, I, like, like uh, I mean, what you need to believe for uh, Pilot's weight business or Juniper's weight business to be differentiated in the long term. Like, let's assume that um, you'll be able to walk into a GP in 12 months' time and um, very easily get prescribed a GLP-1 and, you know, it'll be the same price um, from us as it will be from them. And so, like, that'll be a, a real competition. Um, what we have to show is that we can develop the using technology to let develop the service layer that goes alongside the medication that allows people to change their behaviour to allow them to sustain weight loss without medication over a much longer period than they would just taking the medication alone. And what does that involve? Uh, I think like the crux of the technology innovation of eucalyptus is using technology to lower the cost of an interaction with a healthcare yep. professional. Um, and so doing that um, and then raising the quality of those interactions, which we haven't done a great job of, but like um, if you imagine a weight loss journey, um, I think like the best people at losing weight are Hollywood celebrities who have a personal trainer and a chef and a, um, a dietitian and a doctor. Yeah. Right. Um, there's no reason why a technology platform couldn't, deliver that to some level um, through a multi-practitioner support journey that goes alongside a medication. Um, this is obviously not a new idea because weight loss apps are weight loss apps and, and Noom exists. But I think what um, GLP-1s and what we provided in that sense is like all of those businesses rely on slowly automating the practitioner because they're very low margin businesses. Yep. Um, what medication does is it creates a much stronger lock into the product and probably a better it's margin profile. Point and, then and so then you can use that margin to build a much better service layer. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. But if yeah. we're just a D2C, D, D2C GLP-1 business in a year's time, I fucked. Yeah. Um, and, you know, everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah. Really interested to move on from product to people. Um, I think something that Uke is known for is like hiring really good people and turning them into sort of weapon startup operators. A lot of ex-consultants. Yeah, a lot of ex-consultants. And would love to learn like what have been some of your learnings about hiring, but also like sort of cultivating that talent. And and also the deprogramming of these people and the beliefs they may have had before. I mean, like, have we been good at that deep? I mean, like, I, I think we probably trivialized how much deprogramming and programming would have to be done. I think like... Um, you, like if you go back and listen to that like first Wild Hearts pro, uh, episode where I'm a little bit younger and a bit more naive I think like um, I cast a very wide net of the type of skills that could come in and be successful operators in a short period of time um, and I think the reality is is like um, the necessary skills are much narrower and much deeper um, than you perhaps think like um, filtering by just being academically outstanding is probably not going to be enough, right? Like there probably has to be a level of comfort and adversity. There probably has to be a um, drive to execution. And there probably actually has to be a level of analytical rigor um, that doesn't necessarily naturally come through. Like a lot of high achievers academically will have that, but not all will. Um, And so I think we were bad at filtering um, those people originally. And then also we probably set some of them up for, up for failure because um, we didn't provide the bridge between um, the skills that they came in and the skills that they needed to have. And so like the, the training program that we brought them into was a little bit immature early. It's better now, but, um, but uh, early we, we had some like kind of issues with getting people up to speed in the way that we wanted because we weren't good enough at teaching the things that we thought were innate. Um, and they, you know, they're obviously not innate. 
What do you think makes a really good startup operator or startup hire? Uh, I mean, that's like a really like that's a really there's like a lot of, lot of different great profiles for, for startup yeah. operator, right? So I think like if I take some of the great operators that we have, I think um, some of them are like I think actually like the idea of being T shaped is a pretty powerful one. I yeah. think like I see people spike in one area a lot, um, and so like some of our best operators are like incredible like first principles product thinkers and i wouldn't say like that's a technology skill i would say like solving consumer problems is it comes really naturally to some people i think um some are people are like next level financially capable and literate um and so the capital allocation side of things comes really naturally to them and then some people are just like super disciplined and um able to break down a problem a problem into com- into into like compartmentalize and break down a problem and then solve incrementally along a journey like i think the unsexiest skill set which is probably the most valuable is that one mm-hmm. which is like um poorly defined space really well broken down and then executed a lot of people and i think this is my like ongoing gripe with the field of strategy is like a lot of people it's very easily to break something break something down and then solve conceptually but like the devil is in the transformation from conceptual to actual. Mm. Um, and that's particularly true in startups. And a lot of people think the work is done at conceptual. Mm. Um, and like, so I think like that's a skill set that is underappreciated that I've really like grown to, to have time for. You're going to like that more strategy is actually moving that way because consulting firms can make more money when they do the implementation oh, yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's happening. Seeing RTS, the inside of it. baby, like the, the <laughs> yeah. stuff, yeah. I, I'm really interested. What do you feel like you've become much, much better at from when you first started Eucalyptus to where you are now? Uh, I like... Am I better at this or do I just think that the organization has been gotten better at it? But I think like um, a lot of the mistakes that I've made historically have been like that thing over there is a technical field I don't understand. And so I will trust an expert to solve that problem for me. And almost every time I've done that right back from like very early on in my time at Koala, it has been like a failure um, because I've allowed my first principles beliefs around how things should work from a problem solving perspective, from a team perspective um, and from a strategy perspective to be colored by what I perceive to be expertise um, Mm. in, in a field. Um, And the reality is, is like, I think every business is unique in the way that it needs to solve its problems and craft its way of solving problems. So if you're just going to try and borrow blindly from another business and this way, like can't copy our performance marketing or whatever, it won't work. But I mean, that applied in other areas. I was like, oh, Atlassian do this thing this way. And so therefore we should trust that. And I was wrong about that. Or like, oh, big supply chain company moves medical devices in this way. And so we should, before we should trust everything that person says on supply chain, where I think like, I now believe that like first principles, strong problem solving will trump expertise in almost all scenarios. That's super interesting. I'm really like surprised you didn't study like physics or computer science. Like the way you mm. think seems like like oh, it's just like fan. kind of core analytical kind of yeah. first thinking. But like. you usually meet a lot of people from those disciplines. Yeah. Sciences, I'd say. Yeah. I think like my co-founder, well, one of my co-founders um, who used to be an options trader, like we think very similarly despite like never having had the same professional yeah. um, journey. Yeah. So like he, his understanding of marketing comes do, from. Do you find it to be any like characteristics that uh, connect people together that have that sort of thinking or just um, randomly distributed? Uh, like, I think like it's not randomly distributed, but I think like you certainly see it in a lot of different Area. I think actually like one of the really cool places you see it is like when people are really, really strong people thinkers. Um, so um, I'm not a believer in the field of kind of like 
people I think like the responsibilities of what people in startups tend to call like a head of people or a chief people officer are like really poorly suited for people that rise up through either talent or HR. Um, it's just a fundamentally different job. Mm. And so um, what I've seen recently, which I found like to be super compelling is that like um, people who have had the needs of like a high achiever are really good at designing programs for high achievers because they like innately and, and intuitively understand the journey and then also how to break down that problem. So like, even if you've been a supply chain professional and a super high achiever, you'll actually be really good at um, crafting a people function um, because like your principles will apply because it's not, it's not entirely different. Whereas so like um, to kind of round that out to whether I see like commonalities, I think it's like, if people are really good at breaking down and structuring a problem in any field, I actually find those things to be way more transferable than I expected. We didn't see a tweet about this coming up. So oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I delete a lot of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get onto the tweets, and we will, um, sort of going broad again, you've got a lot of like hot takes and like strong opinions on the Australian startup ecosystem. Mm. What would you like to see more of sort of in this nation when it comes to startups and like see less of? Um, like I, I, I was actually reflecting on this the other day that I was like, I actually have to tweet a bit more positively because I like... Um, there's so much stuff I'm stoked about. Like, I think like, um, I, I, I actually like, um, this is going to be a, this is going to be like a very stereotypical shout out, but like, um, I have had the opportunity over like the last few years to spend like a lot of time with, um, with Cliff, um, from Canva and Mel, um, to a lesser extent. And I like, they're just like truly incredibly good people. Um, and because they are incredibly good people, there is a like generation of incredibly good people that have like spent time in their ecosystem. Um, and I think like being, getting to be a part of that is like such a, such a, like a privilege. And like, I would love to see the continued flow down of what are like outstanding people acting like outstanding people flow down into like more people seeing that and getting to getting the opportunity to be exposed to that. I think I'd like, that would be awesome. And I think like, if I can be a part of that chain, I'd be super stoked. You think that's um, a Nate opportunity for Australia? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think like, I don't know. You, Without you, humility you probably, you probably you, you, like, you, you, I mean, I would imagine that you, neither of you have spent that much any, any time with them, but I think like they are very Australian yeah. um, mm. and, and the people that work around them. Yeah. I think like the thing that I'd love to see more of is less like founder worship. Um, and I just obviously just did a whole lot of founder worship, but, um, but like less founder worship and le and more like a uh, senior operator exposure because like, mm. for instance, like the, the C minus one, of Canva, like a lot of their like early engineers and early product people are like just fantastic people and like awesome experience. And like quite often you'll hear a, like even me, right? Like a series A, like a couple of years ago, like a series A founder, like espousing how fucking good they are at everything. And the reality is like, they've never actually done anything. Like, whereas like people who've been in the fucking grind of Canva's SEO or in the grind of like building their video product, they have the real experience. And so like, I'd love to see more operator um, exposure and kind of learning from operators. Cause I think like it's massively underdone. Um, I think like, and I'm going to sound very hypocritically because I make fun of VCs a lot, but I think like, I actually think like VC in Australia, there's like a cynicism to it. And I actually think it's awesome. Like I actually think like all of the VCs to different extents have like been really ambitious with the things that they're willing to back and like being supportive and being good. Like I, particularly the big ones, like, most of the behavior, particularly for the last five years, has been like really good and really supportive. And I've always found my interactions to be like fundamentally supportive. Um, and I think that's like, like go over to America. It's not like that. <laughs> like, so I think like people, like it's fun to whine and it's also fun to like look at all these people aspiring to be in these dumb jobs where they have to go and talk to hundreds of startups. Um, but um, ultimately these people are like largely good. 
and have had good impact on the ecosystem. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I was like tempted to call you out there, but I've actually seen previous tweets that you said before about Blackbird and you've praised them. So <laughs> I can say that's definitely authentic. <laughs> and on the point of Cliff, he was just on 20 VC oh, and yeah. he is like the most authentic and genuine founder I've ever seen. Like someone that has like yeah. billions of dollars, like $50 billion company. Like he's just an yeah. Aussie good bloke. Yeah, why do you go on the world's worst podcast? He was just talking about like getting beers after work. He's just like, he sounds so casual and like he was going to go into a role of teaching and he was like into construction before that i think like i think so so humble i like that's all true um one thing i would not want people to leave this thinking is that like listening to that and like getting a very like casual vibe the most impressive thing about cliff and the most the thing i've learned most from him oh no he was pretty intense oh yeah he's super intense um is that like he's an incredibly good fast decision maker and so like mel is this incredibly considered product thinker and just like probably the best product mind of our generation. Um, and then you have Cliff as the like counterpoint to that as this like incredible operational grind, willing to get in the weeds and just push quickly. And like that pairing is just like incredible. And I think like, Cliff's mm. often underplayed in that pairing because it's like you hear about Mel and also Mel's awesome. So it's like, um, but yeah, he's, he's incredible. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go like really deep into it, but what's the one thing that makes her brilliant a product? That's a big claim. Um, like she has this ability to see around corners from like a trends perspective that I just don't have. Right. So I've had like a number of comments, like I haven't had that many detailed conversations with her over time about product, but like, like this ability to stick to principles, like the way that I make decisions is if I like see something moving slightly, I will move with the thing. And I will like know that my path is messy and that like the combination of the 900 small turns that I make will hopefully end up in the right place. Like, Hers is a dead straight line. Is you getting chat GPT like, on, on the product then? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but like she she bends the world, like Canva bends the world to Canva um, mm. by thinking the longest way, the longest time. And I think that's what the great product people do. And I like don't have that skill. Um, so when you get, when you see that skill up close, it's like phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I actually think like it's massively under talked about, like because there's not enough respect for product in Australian media coverage of startups. Like Canva, the product is massively underrated. Mm. Um, we're going to shift into some of your controversial tweets in a second. But <laughs> what struck me is that you're very reflective about yourself. Um, what do you think are some of your weaknesses and how have you gone about kind of improving them? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, where do we start? Um, so I'm like a bad first principles product thinker. Um, and so like I have a short, um, I have like my timelines to see things work and play out in the um, way that I expect them to is really short. And so often I like, change direction and cause confusion and that that has negative impacts um the second thing is i think like i'm like surprising and this is going to sound ridiculous but like in a su- surprisingly like low ambition um from a technology <laughs> perspective so like from a product and technology perspective i'm like i'm like here is the next ten dollars so i'm like i think rory from propeller uses this phrase and i'm going to steal it because i like it but it's like like we're both like revenue truffle hounds so we will go and find the next revenue and like stop at all the points along the way to get the revenue. But like, that's actually not like the best way to build a platform business. Um, and so having to learn around that, I think like um, we were having this, oh, we were talking about this before, but like there's this like uh, analytical, and I, like, I hate to put these on a spectrum because they're not on a spectrum, but like um, there is like analytical direct comms and then there is like empathetic people oriented comms and like the best people are able to switch between the two of them and like, I rarely would switch into the, the, mm. the more empathetic version of that, unfortunately. So I'm learning about that. And that's like been feedback since I got the first day I started Koala to now. Um, and then I think, um, I actually think like at times I've been too malleable 
to like I think like not having a strong enough vision for like what the product needs to do and what the business needs to do over like a long timeline. I'm like, we'll figure it out on the go on the way. We also have lots mm. of products and businesses. In yeah, mind, very right? fragmented, so, yeah. right? Mm. Um, so that's probably been a weak point. Um, I think I'm like not a great written communicator at times. Um, so that that like I think actually like good writing is such a superpower in organizations, and I don't like model that behavior i'm a reasonable public speaker but so the, like all hands is fine but then the follow-up to all hands has got to be like great structured thought mm. around writing i don't do that very well so that's mm. um so there's lots of you know you, you end up bending your organization to your weaknesses as much as to your strengths and so eucalyptus strengths and weaknesses reflect that i think yeah that's super candid and some of that was like very unexpected but i think it shows like you've got amazing self-awareness like you've <laughs> thought about this yeah, very maybe, deeply yeah, yeah. Which, which is good um yeah, jumping onto some of the tweets now. And yeah, something I actually like really, really like and admire about you is just how you put your opinions forth. And I think it's really good because it prompts new debates. It prompts yeah. ideas out there. And like that conversation probably wouldn't be happening if you didn't do that. Yeah. And so a lot of people I say like, I don't know, I get hurt or it's like, it's too mean. Like, no, like I really like it. It's debate out there. And something you said the other day was like 99% of Australia junior VCs add no value. Yeah. Is, so firstly, do you believe that? Secondly, why? Uh, I mean, 99%, like... Like, like obviously exactly. Let's, let's strip yeah. back the hot techness of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the model for junior VCs to become valuable members of venture capital firms is like fundamentally broken. Um, and I think the reasons that I believe that to be true, and like feel free to correct me on because I obviously don't spend much time in the day of a young VC, but um, the job of like interacting with heaps of companies as like the entry point into the firm. Terrible idea. Because like those people are like have you on a pedestal about like what you can tell them about like for better or worse VCs are held up, held up as a pedestal of like whether or not my company is good or not and why would a 22 year old have any fucking idea about that so entry point terrible often a lot of bad advice goes to early stage founders because um, young people are trying to find their feet on giving advice terrible um, the second thing is um, they're often the like shit kicker analyst on the portfolio companies so they're expected to get like high levels of depth on a portfolio company but they've had no training and so like they ask a series of really dumb questions about a portfolio company and usually that's to the founders in a really frustrating way and so like the, your perception of your relationship with the vc firm is like holy fuck these guys are mind-numbingly dumb um and that's super painful um and then do they actually learn the decision making processes that would make them good venture capital investors like i just don't think they get the reps um, and like the reps that they do get are really weird reps, right? Because you see all these bad companies and then you kind of, as soon as a good one comes through, someone else kind of takes it over and makes the decision. And so it's like, well, am I really going to put myself on the line here? Sometimes, maybe. And so like, and then also they never see the operator side. Um, and so it's like the things that you think are important are the things that you've read in blogs. And like ridiculous. It's like those things are usually not important. And so it's like, um, I hate the way that uh, young venture investors think about business in the most part. And like somebody tweeted on that is like, if the apprenticeship model is not the way to do it, I think like the apprenticeship model is the way to do it, but the way the apprenticeship is designed is terrible. Um, it's not like young investment banking analysts go out and talk to the client and assess whether or not the, the, the client's worth taking to you know the markets or whatever. It's like, that never happens. It's like they do the slog and they're unseen for quite a long time. But the first thing a young VC does is go to fucking Blackbird's event and sit on a panel. Ridiculous. What's your take on that, Satch? <laughs> I think a lot of that is fair if true. And it, I'm sure it is true in a lot of the cases. It hasn't been in my case at all. I think that the like the first thing is I don't think young VCs should be giving advice to I completely agree with you like with that. But I also think there is value you can add to a founder by asking good questions when you're six months in. 
when you've done the reps and you've talked to a lot of first-time founders, and it helps if you found something before and you've been an operator in a startup, I actually think good question questioning isn't necessarily like linear correlated with age and experience. Like if someone is like 10 years in management consulting, I don't actually think they'll make a better like questioner. And we've had podcast experience, so I guess that um, that makes sense. Um, a lot of this stuff is different to the model how we work. And I think the, the third or fourth thing you said around decision-making, I think most funds have an IC committee. Mm. So like everyone sits around, you actually hear the decision-making. Mm. And if you're with a good partner, then you actually get to be involved in the process, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I also like, you know, having young kind of VCs ask you stupid questions when you should be running your company, that's a shit experience. Like, but also for the record, like, I don't think most actual VCs are good decision-makers mm. necessarily either, right? Like it takes 10 years to figure out if you're any good. Mm. Um, and so... Like, are you really learning? Mm. Like, what are you learning from mm. uh, in a lot of those contexts? Like, and I think, like, like let's just take the averages, right, and assume that, like, 20, 2021 was a bubble. And, mm. like, let's say there are five big VC funds in Australia. Like, one of them maybe will be a top quartile fund in the world, mm. and that will return three to one. The other three, the other four will be middling at best. Mm. And so, like, are you really learning? They're all top quartile right now based yeah, on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark up, mark yeah, downs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the ones I've seen. Yeah, and I'm also a top quartile. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, too much to go into there. Yeah. Um, to, to make this practical, what do you think young VCs in Australia who they're going to stay VCs? They're still VCs. What should they do instead? I, like, I how think, should they? Learn? I think like the approach you guys have taken is really good. Like, um, get out there, you know, share opinions, like get feedback, um, but do it in a way that is not protected. But like, make your own. I actually think. There's a guy at Folklore who writes a, a blog. Abby Shack, yeah. 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 And I'm like, this is sick. He's putting his ideas Shout out there out and some of them are terrible. Mm. And I'm yeah. like, but some of them are awesome. And I'm like, I'm, yeah. I'm going to like read every one of these things and be like, <laughs> this is stupid. This is great. But I'm like, I'm actually like, he's, mm. he's getting out there and structuring thought and making it happen. And I'm like yeah. really respectful of that because it's like really interesting. And obviously like founding things is great too, but obviously not everybody can do that. Um, but I also think like fucking lots of young smart people want to be investing and it's like no like don't do that build something like and i'm like not in the like oh everyone should be a builder camp but like even go and work for somebody who's building something and like be a part of something that way like the time to optimize for returns from a capital perspective that road is long and i just don't think it's a good way to build a career no, no offense. Talking to the wrong <laughs> No, um, that part I agree with. I think less young people should be applying for VC roles. Like there's thousands of people that apply. It's like the new investment banking. And I think that... Go to operations at a startup. Yeah. Like get in the grind. Like mm. I, would, I would imagine like this is going to be, it's going to be hard to know, right? But I would like, there would be more, va like we have four 24 to 26 year olds in our operations team who like have been on the grind of moving medication around the country and like the trade-offs that you have to make between having three pharmacy partners and 30 or between having a next day delivery and three day delivery. And like the complexity of decision-making that goes into that and like capital around that and like how that I would be, they would be a better assessor of businesses than 30% of the VC partners I've met and 70% of the sub partner level people that I've met in VC. Mm, interesting. Because they can just get to depth. Can they get through depth across different kinds of ideas? Cause that's probably, but like you can add that later. Mm. Like, like, Getting to set, like, that's not, you know, you don't, you don't get to depth across mm. different kinds of ideas. You get to shallow across lots of things mm. or like one degree of depth. I would argue that you never get to four degrees of depth. Yeah. I've seen enough analysis to know that like it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and like, well, let's see in a couple of years time when the VC <laughs> returns come out. Yeah, um, yeah. It'd be interesting to know. So another one is, is that 
I reckon one of the dumbest truths of business building is that ideas are cheap, bad ideas are cheap, good ideas are rare. Designing teams, forums, and cultures capable of producing them is extremely difficult, much more difficult than execution. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, 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 okay. Um, so creating a production line capable of spinning something out, right? Mm. So, um, okay, one of our medications is cold stored, right? Uh, it costs, there's only two cold delivery providers in Australia at scale. Um, one of them is, uh, like, they're both limited in what they can deliver because, like, they're relatively unsophisticated, but big scale businesses, and not to be too harsh on them, right? Um, but the impact of that is that a lot of patients have a relatively poor experience because of the variance that exists in that system, right? Running that system is not particularly difficult. And like executing that system to the best of that system's capability, not particularly difficult. Small changes, incremental. But the reality is, is like even with every incremental change, um, you're only going to get to a certain quality of delivery because the reality is, is that you still got all these reliances, right? But like the ideas by which you could step change that experience um, are extremely valuable and rare. So like, for instance, one of the ways that you could do it is you could create some like artificial storing cooling system that like acts as some kind of a thermos for the thing, right? Very difficult to do as well. Might be expensive, might be cheap, might be doable and it might be not, mm. right? Um, but, the, and there's probably 20 of those ideas. I've actually found that most people are better at executing the system that they're told to execute on then generating the step change moments and startups are about step change moments. Yeah. And so like this idea that ideas are cheap, it's like, yeah, bad ones. Mm. But like, I, like I work with this guy and I've, I'm going to hate, I actually like, I hate even, it makes me sick to even think that I might have to shut him out. But um, I've worked with this guy for a long time. His name's Michael Beveridge. Um, and he's like an idiot um, in like, <laughs> in like most ways. Right. But he's actually like creatively brilliant. And yeah. he's like, you must be a good friend of yours. To be able you to have say to that. like you have to tolerate that like he is going to work seven percent of the time that you pay him to work. Right? You just have to deal with that. What's he doing the rest of the time? Who knows? He watches a lot of Philadelphia 76ers basketball. Like who knows, right? But like that seven percent of time is like three hundred ideas to move the creative engine of the business forward in a step yeah. changed way, um, and so. I'm like, I'm actually, I've gotten to the point of personal peace with the idea that like I pay him per idea and when he's sitting in a room on his own, on his phone, watching the 76ers, I'm okay with it. Mm. Um, and I think like that's creativity. Um, so does he literally creativity. just come up with ideas for you? Like what, what's his role? Oh, he's a creative. Like, yeah. Um, he, he comes, so he, he does, he's recently done, um, he's recently done, uh, there's this ad we're running at the moment about um, a guy shitting himself on year nine camp. Um, and he came up with this idea and he wrote the ad and stuff like that. And like, I'm like, well, whatever. If he does that, like, and it's, it's, it's a quite a good ad. And I'm mm. like, if he does one, if he does three of those a month, that's positive ROI. And like people who grind and produce a hundred small incremental improvements will hate the existence of that guy. And I, I hate the existence of that. <laughs> um, but like, I recognize the value of it and that's the sentiment behind it. Yeah, we're going to eat it. We're going to talk to him. Yeah. Um, the next question I found really hilarious and I want you to answer it like properly and analytically, but Sean Stewart on Twitter asked, if you had to pick between two different archetypes, would you choose a, a life course peddling life coach sales Chad or a Miami VC with no exits? Oh, definitely the sales Chad. Okay. <laughs> definitely. Why? Explain. I, I think like, I think like, look, you're like, I think the thing about those people is like ultimately most of them are making the most of their talent, right? Like they, 
are hustling to get things done, to sell things, to like build something, right? Like if I had to compare like being someone who signals something to somebody who does something, I would take the does something almost every day. And I think like the my, the problem with the Miami, like I it's, it's the worst part of all VC, right? Which is like, <laughs> I will be a trend follower in a field that rewards people who don't follow trends. Like I will move to Miami because fucking Keith Raboy did it. Who cares? You know, like do something unique and be unique. And if that's going to be like a weird sales chat, then like good execute on that. And also like a lot of these people who are like, this, the VC signaling sheep are actually really clever. And so it's a complete waste of talent that they're doing that. Cool. That's a good answer. Um, so, so we're going to, do you reckon, let's move into quick fires now. Let's do it. Um, so we're going to ask you actually 10 questions and you're going to have 30 <laughs> seconds to answer each one. We have a, we have a few of them going. Um, Adam, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. What's one of your favorite books and why? 30 seconds. Uh, I reread uh, Zero to One recently and like that's a super lame answer, but like, <laughs> holy shit, it was, it's an impressive piece of thinking. Um, and I think it's impressive th- piece of thinking because so much of it is now redundant because what he's advocating for is being different. And now so many of those lessons have been adopted in a way that that's the way startups do things. And so it's like, I'd imagine he would hate that people read that and do the things in it now, which I think is awesome. I feel really sorry for people that listen to podcasts on 2x speed normally because that was good. <laughs> 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 What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Uh, again, oh, like, so... The sub series of so you know like the invest like the best podcast, yeah. um, the 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 business that Colossus bought, which is that founder story. Founders, yeah, that's really good. Like David so, Center or something. Yeah, so like I don't love the dude, but I'm like I'm like as in I don't love the way that he talks about books. Cause I think he extracts the wrong lessons in a lot of cases. But I'm just like the sheer volume of things that are covered. I'm like I find books to read yes. based on mm. based on that, and I'm like yeah. that's great. <laughs> Um, and I've, so I've been, I've been listening to a lot of that Do recently. Do you consume a lot of information generally? Uh, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Okay. Yeah. I'm a big audiobook person. What's one of your favorite hobbies and why? Uh, I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm like such a big, like, my life is fundamentally better when I'm running often. Yeah. Um, and I know Nick would have said that last week, so that's going to be extremely, like, lame What's follow-up. the longest you've ever run? Uh, no, I don't like running long distances. I just okay. like running. I like running. My ideal run is, like, 10K quite fast, as, well, as fast as I can. That's probably the best version you of it. You should give him your times, Adam, so you guys can get competitive. Yeah, we'll get competitive. <laughs> yeah. Who's the founder that you look up to? Uh, I look up to a lot of... Um, so, like... Okay, so two founders I really um, have a huge amount of respect for. Are, um, so Alex Badrin at Spriggy and Rory San Miguel at Propeller. And the reason that I like them is because both of them are non-linear success stories. So both of them, like objectively have at different points in the life of their business run bad businesses. Um, I think we, we, we spend a lot of time obsessing over like um, the divine intervention style businesses. So like where they like found an idea and it became the greatest idea of all time. And I think the underrated ones are like the grind to a hundred million dollar business type ones. And I think like both of those stories to that, to their current point are like that. Um, and I think like Rory's built a culture at Propeller um, where it's you know it's seven years in and there's so much love in that business for for the from the people that work there for the team that I think like you got to look at those long stories and the ones that have been long grinds and 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 being be respectful of that because I think they're the most impressive. Cool. Um, do where do you do your best like thinking and reflecting? Uh, so I you know how like there's the like anti meeting crowd. Mm. I'm in the pro meeting crowd. And the reason I'm in the pro meeting crowd is I get a lot of energy from other people, as mm. you can probably tell. Um, and so I've realized that like I'm particularly useless on Slack mm. and I find it distracting and confusing. And so like the more time I can spend with small groups of people problem solving, um, 
the better I think my impact on the business is. And I might be like a detractor from their ability to get their work done. But I think like net impact is like my ideal setting is like a good pre-read to a five person meeting that goes for 90 minutes and is about a big problem. Mm. Um, And the more of those I could have, the better I would be. What about you're reflecting on yourself and your weaknesses and stuff? Where where does that come in? Uh, I think you learn that in like the pain of experience, right? Like you... Um, you go through these moments where you're like, holy fuck, I fucked that up. And mm. I think like learning to take ownership of them and kind of figure out what went wrong. Like the best example is the first half of 2021, 2022 eucalyptus. Uh, let's call it like Q4 2021 to Q1, and Q1 2022. Um, so like I would consider myself to be like a very good, discipl- like a very disciplined marketer. And in fact, I think like that's actually the only thing I'm really good at. Um, and yet I was looking at the like CAC positions and I'd listen to, certain members of our like broader board and advisory group way too much. And I'd like blown out the core tenant that I'd built the business of out of like a lack of discipline and a lack of self-control. And I think like, that's like a remarkably painful learning because you're like, I'm this thing. And now my business is reflective of the worst parts of this thing. Um, and so to have to change that and cost, you know, a whole lot of people their employment and like a lot of people we promised um, a lot of, you know, you know, happy times to um, is a pretty painful period of reflection. If you had a hundred million dollars right now, what would you do? Uh, if I had a hundred million dollars right now, I like I have a lot of time for like the deep tech. Well, what am I trying to achieve? Am I trying to achieve like uh like okay so like if I was trying to achieve like impact in the world, I think I would try and work with more of the like big idea early stage mm. founders, which I'm not. Um, if I was trying to achieve financial returns, I would probably try and raise a mid-market private equity firm and buy a whole lot of boomer retiring businesses and fix them because that's, like, what I'm good at. Um, and if I was trying to have fun, I think, like, the, like, living in different places around the world, um, moving every quarter would probably be the way I'd spend mm. the next five years. Cool. Um, does art play a role in your life at any um, Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I think like, I have... Um, like I have a relationship with like long form writing, particularly like journalism, like, like that there's a website long reads where it just kind of collates good long form writing um, that I just like, I just love really well articulated storytelling over like a lot of words. Like it, there's this great, great, great piece of writing about Nick Kyrgios by Richard Cook. Um, it's probably my favorite piece of writing. In the show notes. Yeah. It's so good. Um, uh, and there's another one about, um, Anthony Albanese, I'm not sure who actually wrote it. It's in the monthly, I think. And like, just like these, like these, like deep looks at people. Oh, there's also, I'm, I'm sure Jax will have um, talked about this one at, at work, but um, there's the one about uh, Solomon, the DJ, mm, um, yeah, the New Yorker amazing. profile, yeah. just like I things like that. that. I just like, I'm like, I just like think about those things for weeks afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that, 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 that and essential mixes. I love essential mixes as well. What the Nicholas you, Jar essential mix is the best thing ever. What has made you happiest in recent times? Uh, I think like, this is going to sound weird, but I was like surprisingly happy getting married. Oh, you um, got married. Yeah, I got married in the middle of last year. Oh. And, um, I am not Why surprisingly. One, oh, I'm not one for like, I, I don't like love being the center of a big event. I actually mm-hmm. quite dislike that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, look, I, I'm actually very, very happy doing it all hands and like probably too happy. And like my company probably suffers from having me too happy doing all hands. Um, but, but like, Things where I don't control the room particularly well, I, like, really dislike. Um, so I was kind of, like, anxious about, like, a wedding. 
Um, but I just actually turn it into an all hands. Just start speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, no, so I think like what was really cool about it um, was like the opportunity to like reflect on the things that were important in my life from like a relationship perspective, obviously with my wife. And like, that was like a very cool thing to reflect on like our journey to that point, but also to have like everyone that's important in your life in a room at one point on one day that is like designed to be a huge celebration of the fact that all those people are together at one time. And we got married in Sweden. So a lot of people had traveled for that. Um, and it was just so, so good. And like, I just like, I've become like a wedding maximalist in the sense of like, <laughs> I'm like telling everybody I know who's like thinking about eloping or like thinking about, cause like a lot of my friends, would have got married during COVID and so therefore didn't. Um, and therefore, like, I'm trying to decide. And I'm like, best thing you can ever spend money on. Wow. Is your wife similar or different to you? Very, very different. Okay. Um, so Swedish, so a designer. Um, wow. Like, uh, like, structured, much more quiet. But I think, like, we we just have a lot of fun. Like, that's I think that's the, the, the like, the super simple way to describe it. We met working in a, a bar 10 years ago and, like, we've been having fun ever since. So that's probably it. So two more. If you weren't in startups or marketing, what would you be doing? Uh, it wasn't startups or marketing. I love restaurants. Mm. Um, like the worst version of that is, um, I'm a bit like that guy. Have you seen the movie, that movie, The Menu? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit like Shocking. a suicide dude. Um, <laughs> but the best version of it is like I'm like a designer of. Um, say about you. <laughs> like I'm a designer. I, I, I like I love the system design of a restaurant like i love how a menu is constructed from the perspective of like bringing people to buy shit which is the highest margin yeah interesting you must go to fancy restaurants then by the sounds of it i used to work i had the best job for a period i was working for this um, american dude who was the f&b director of a large hospitality group in australia and what i would do is i would do he'd come up with concepts so he'd be like let's do a 300 seater french place and I do all of the numbers behind that. So mm -hmm. I'd be like, okay, if the menu is like this, we'll probably make this much money here. We probably have to charge this for wine. We probably have to charge this for cocktails. Tables have to be here, here, and here. So that was a super fun. Is thing. that what you do when you're on your runway? Just yeah, move people around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I was uh, going to say work for this guy. I'd love to do, maybe this is what I would do if I have $100 million. I'd probably do like a, like a money losing venture fund that like was like scholarships <laughs> for So chefs. contrarian. So, because I, like, I hate the Maryvale of that, Maryvale, Maryvale, the turning in, <laughs> Sydney turning into a giant Maryvale venue. Yeah. I hate that. I love it. I, I think Maryvale I think venues are really best good. Best venues. I think such a good ad to Sydney. <laughs> like, like, they're good, right? But, like, yeah. the fact that every venue does fucking burrata and lamb shoulder and some fucking bread is a disgrace because <laughs> it, like, takes the identity away from eating and it takes the identity away from restaurant design because it's like everybody's optimizing to be a big fucking shared steak. Like, who cares? Don't do that. Keep a bit of character in your venue. Um, but I understand why, because you have to make money. And yep. staff are fucking expensive, as some of our favorite businesses are now finding out. Um, and so um, what I think is like really interesting is like if you were able to build good systems around great chefs, it would be like creative enablement. It'd be like being a um, like a patron mm. to the to, to a and I think that would be really cool. Be like, hey, choose this pods, pause, no, don't put that on the menu. No, no two. So like for instance, never put like four packs, like four person tables in restaurants, like they're really money losing. Like twos and eights. Twos and eights. <laughs> All right. Last one. If you had a billboard to show everyone in the world, what would it say? <laughs> like my mind goes to like it's it's your philosophy into the world. My, like, my mind, like, I think, like, I would probably put, like, what do I want? What do I, oh. 
like my mind goes to what would be the most effective version of the billboard. So like, <laughs> like, like I'm like thinking in in concept, like like conceptually, I'm thinking in like what it should be structured like, which is the wrong way to think about it. I mean, does everybody see it? Or do I have to make everybody see it? No, everyone sees it. <laughs> this is the most anybody has ever thought about this question as well. It doesn't go like, I have to go like viral. It's just like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. It could be a viral billboard if, if it's good, good message. Right. I, I think like, I think like if it were to be like a philosophy thing, it'd be like, I think like the downside of most bets is smaller than you imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like loss take, a version risk. of like take the leap. Yeah. Um, mm. But like, I think take the leap is shallow. I think it's actually more about loss. Of, like people are more, people don't take the leap because like the leap isn't exciting. Everyone knows the leap is exciting. Mm. It's like yeah. loss aversion. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good sort of flipping there. We always yeah. think about like risk, take risk, yeah. but it's like, actually you don't need to have loss aversion. Like it's okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like I think, um, and increase, like the more bets you take are like obviously the less scale mm. of each individual bet. It's like that's, staking yeah. and punting. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that was an awesome podcast. That went places where I didn't think it was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> as well. That was really fun. And also because you get so many, I talk so fast, you get so many words in. Yeah. 